Chapter 24 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 24 the thirteenth century at the beginning of the thirteenth century the western church was ruled by the greatest of all the popes innocent the third we have seen how pope innocent interfered in affairs in england but in all the other countries of europe it was the same he was a very handsome and noble-looking man he belonged to a noble roman family and became pope when he was only thirty-seven years old which was young for a pope he lived a good life and was very kind and gentle, though sometimes his fierce temper would break out. He believed that the Pope should rule over all the world and that the kings should obey him, or if they did not, that he could take their kingdoms from them as he had threatened to do with John. Pope Innocent was the first Pope who was really able to do these things, and indeed he was the last, for no Pope after him was able to behave in this way. The kings and people were ready to obey the Pope in religious matters, but would not agree that he was over them in other things. Yet Pope Innocent used his power well. King Philip Augustus of France was growing more and more powerful. It was he who won Normandy from King John, and he made the feudal lords obey him, so that France became a strong kingdom like England. But Philip Augustus was not a good man. He married a young Danish princess called Ingeborg, but the day after the marriage he sent her away and said he would not have her any more for his wife. He then married another lady. Pope Innocent was very angry and sent word to the French king that he must take back his proper wife. Philip Augustus would not, and so France, like England, was put under an interdict. Then the king gave in, and soon after, when the new wife died, he took Ingeborg back, but it was twenty years before he behaved to her as though she was really his wife. All this time Innocent would not be friendly with the king, but after this they became great friends. Innocent was very anxious that the Crusades should go on, and so they did through all the thirteenth century, but though great men joined them, there was never any real success. One great result of the Crusades was that there was much more trading between East and West, and in time the ships of Venice, the city which had grown up among the lagoons in the north of the Adriatic Sea, got most of this trade. Venice became rich and important. At the same time the Eastern Empire lost a great deal of its trade and was becoming weaker and weaker. Its emperors were weak and stupid men. Now, when in the year 1203 the Fourth Crusade was begun, it was arranged that the Venetian ships should carry the Crusaders to the east. But instead of sailing to Palestine, the Venetians attacked Constantinople and made themselves master of it. Constantinople was a most beautiful city, full of great buildings and statues and treasures, some of which belonged to the great days of the Roman Empire. The Venetians robbed the churches and other buildings and sent back some of the greatest treasures to help them make their own beautiful city 
still more beautiful. Most of the northern Italian cities were independent by this time. Venice was a republic and was ruled by a duke, the Doge, as he was called, chosen by the people. Every year, at the same date, the Doge, sitting on a throne in a beautiful ship, hung with scarlet and gold stuffs, sailed through the canals of Venice into the harbour. There the Doge dropped a golden ring into the water, saying, We wed thee, O sea, in token of our true and eternal dominion over thee. It was a blind old doge called Dandalo who led the Venetians against Constantinople on the Fourth Crusade. Pope Innocent was not pleased that the Crusaders had attacked a Christian city instead of the Mohammedans, but he comforted himself, for the Church of the Eastern Empire did not obey the Pope, and now for nearly sixty years Constantinople was ruled by princes from the West, just as the Kingdom of Jerusalem had been. In the end, the Greeks won their empire back, but Crete and other islands belonged to the Venetians for hundreds of years. Every year Venice grew richer and more beautiful. Marble palaces and churches were built along her canals, and even now, when the city is no longer great, visitors gliding in gondolas, as Venetian boats are called, along her canals are filled with wonder at their beauty. Pope Innocent was always trying to stir people up for a fresh crusade, and in his time people must have been talking continually about the Holy Land. The Children's Crusade In the year 1212, at a time when no one seemed to be taking any notice of the Pope's requests, a young French shepherd boy called Stephen made up his mind to lead a crusade himself. He got together thousands of other young boys, and they marched south to Marseille on the coast of France. Stephen promised those who followed him that he would lead them over the seas without wetting their feet. But most of these children, for they were only boys, were carried off by slave dealers and sold as slaves in Egypt. About the same time, a boy called Nicholas from Cologne in Germany got together an army of young boys and led them into Italy, meaning to go on to the Holy Land but no one knows what became of them. These expeditions were called the Children's Crusade, and Pope Innocent said to the men whom he wanted to go to the Holy Land, The very children put us to shame. At last, a new crusade did start. The Fifth Crusade had for its leader the Emperor Frederick II, who was one of the greatest men of the Middle Ages. He was the grandson of Frederick Barbarossa, and his father was the Emperor Henry VI. His father died while he was a baby, and his mother Constance died soon afterwards. She was a Norman, and from her he had the Kingdom of Sicily. While he was a boy, Pope Innocent looked after Frederick. He was brought up at Palermo, and he was a very clever and nice-looking boy. He learned all he could from the Greeks and Arabs of Sicily, and knew so much that people called him the wonder of the world. Pope Innocent died when Frederick was only twenty. Although Frederick had been brought up by a pope, this did not prevent him from quarrelling with the popes who came after. Indeed, the quarrel between the emperor and the popes was perhaps bitterer than ever under Frederick II. Frederick pretended to be a good Christian, but people said that he did not really believe the things which the church taught. 
he made friends with the Arabs in Sicily and South Italy and lived in great luxury like they did. He gathered scholars and poets together in his palace and even studied the use of medicines. He had a great number of camels brought from the east and the Sultan of Egypt sent him a present of an elephant which people thought a very curious and wonderful animal. Very few people had ever seen such a thing although 400 years before, Charles the Great had had one too. The Pope after Innocent was called Honorius III. He had once been Frederick's teacher and was always very gentle with him, but Frederick only made use of his friendship to please himself. He got the Pope to agree to his son becoming emperor after him, although he had promised that he would not make him emperor and king of Sicily too, as the Pope thought that this was too much power for one man. All that during the time of Honorius, Frederick was promising to go on crusade, but he never did. Then the new Pope, Gregory the Ninth, at last lost patience and excommunicated Frederick for not keeping his promise. Then at last Frederick led a great army to the east, and now the Pope was angry again, for he said that a man under sentence of excommunication should not dare to fight in the Holy War. There was practically no fighting, but Frederick made a ten years' peace with the Mohammedans, and Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Jerusalem were handed over to the Christians. Frederick crowned himself King of Jerusalem, but no priest could be got to go through the services of the church for him. Frederick then went back to Italy, where he found the Pope's armies in Apulia, part of his kingdom in South Italy. Frederick soon drove them out, and then at last peace was made between the Pope and the Emperor. Frederick cared much more for Italy than he did for Germany. In his kingdom in the south he made himself a despot. No one else had any power at all. But in Germany he let the great lords do what they liked, and although his father and grandfather had done a great deal to join the German states into one kingdom, Frederick let them become almost independent, and it was this which helped to keep Germany broken up for hundreds of years into little states, instead of being one nation like France or England. Frederick's son Henry, who was to be emperor after him, rebelled against his father and was shut up in prison in Apulia, there he was to stay until he died. But he escaped, and, as he preferred to die rather than be caught and put in prison again, he drove his horse over a high precipice, and so killed himself. Frederick had a long struggle too with the towns of northern Italy, and won great victories over them, and he quarrelled once more with the Pope. Frederick invited all kings and princes to join him in fighting against the Pope, for he said the Pope wanted to take all power from them, but the other kings took no notice. Pope Gregory, in his turn, said that Frederick was wicked in his life and a heretic in his beliefs, and tried to get the Germans to rebel against him. He even offered the Emperor's crown to the brother of King Louis IX of France, but the French nobles told the Pope that he could not give or take a king's crown except with the advice of a general council that is, a meeting of bishops from different parts of the world. Pope Gregory did try to get a council together at Rome. The ships of Genoa were to carry the bishops to the council, but Frederick had nearly all the greatest towns on the coast of Italy on his side. Chief of them was Pisa, 
they got together a fleet and captured the Genoese ships. The bishops were carried off to Naples and were tormented with hunger and thirst and then thrown into prison. Frederick was even going to attack Rome when Pope Gregory died. A new pope, Innocent IV, was just as bitter as Gregory and the emperor again threatened to attack Rome. Innocent fled to Lyon in the south of France and there called a council which said that Frederick should be emperor no longer. King Louis of France tried to make peace, but the enemies were too bitter. Rebellion broke out against Frederick in different parts of Germany and Italy, and in these later years of his life he lost instead of winning battles. Frederick grew very unhappy and began to look on everyone as his enemy. He thought that his faithful friend, Peter della Vigna, who had always served him well, had turned against him, and he had his eyes put out. He then dragged him with him, dressed in rags, wherever he went, until in the end Peter killed himself. Frederick's favourite son, Enzio, was taken prisoner by the people of Bologna, one of the north Italian cities which fought against him, and the emperor was told that he was to be kept in prison all his life. Soon after, Frederick became very ill and died. It was said that he made peace with the church and had himself dressed in the habit of a Cistercian monk and so died peacefully and happily. Others said that he died cursing and in the greatest misery, but probably this is not true. Frederick II was the last of the great emperors who struggled against the great popes. When Frederick II died, his son Conrad ruled as king in Germany. He sent his brother Manfred to rule Sicily for him. But the Pope was no more friendly to Conrad than he had been to Frederick. He offered Sicily to different people, among them Henry III of England, who gladly paid large sums of money to the Pope, who promised Sicily to Henry's second son, Edmund. A crusade was preached against Conrad, and fighting began, but before long the Emperor died, leaving a little son called Conradin. Manfred then fought and won Naples and Sicily for himself, but the Pope now offered the crown of Sicily to Charles of Anjou, the brother of King Louis IX of France. Charles led a great army against Manfred and killed him. Conradin was now fifteen years old. He was a brave and handsome boy, and he made up his mind to march from Germany and win back the kingdom of the two Sicilies, from Charles of Anjou. He took with him his dearest friend, Frederick, Duke of Austria, and a small army, but he was taken prisoner, and he and his friend had their heads cut off by Charles' order. Charles of Anjou was a cruel ruler, and the people of Sicily and South Italy hated him. They hated him too for his cruelty to Conradin. As Conradin was going to lay his head on the block, he had thrown down his glove, which was the way a knight invited another to fight, and had declared that the German people would wash out in French blood this insult to their king. It was not very many years before the Sicilians themselves took a terrible revenge on their French rulers. A French soldier insulted a Sicilian girl on the street, and her lover stabbed him to the heart. It was the signal for an attack on all the French in the island. The massacre began as the church bells were ringing for vespers and went on through the whole night. 
it was always afterwards spoken of as the Sicilian Vespers. Soon after, Pedro of Aragon, the husband of Conradin's cousin, fought Charles and won Sicily from him. French rulers still governed Naples, but in a few years this too went to a Spanish ruler. Conradin was the last of the family of Frederick II. After his death, the seven German princes, who had the right of electing the emperor, chose foreigners like Richard, Duke of Cornwall, the brother of Henry III of England, or Alfonso the Wise, King of Castile. But at last they saw that they must elect a German prince, so that the emperor could keep order between the states. But after Frederick's time, these rulers were German kings, and hardly interfered at all in Italy. The great towns of northern Italy began each to conquer the smaller towns round them, and soon Venice, Milan and Florence was each the capital of a little Italian state. St. Louis of France King Louis the Ninth of France, who had tried to make peace between the Pope and the Emperor, was very different from Frederick. He was a saint and a splendid king besides. He too had become king as a baby, when his father Louis the Eighth, the son of Philip Augustus, died. His mother was a Spanish lady, Blanche of Castile. She was a very brave and determined woman, and when the feudal nobles, whom Philip Augustus had kept in order, tried to get their own way again, she soon put down their rebellion. She looked well after her boy, and had him carefully taught and trained, so that he was not at all spoilt by being a king so soon. He loved his prayers, and when he was grown up, he would get up at midnight to go to matins in the church, just as the monks did. His nobles indeed grumbled, because they said he wasted so much time in prayer, but he reminded them that they wasted more time still in gambling and hunting. But St. Louis was not sad or gloomy. He was always good-tempered and patient, and could not bear people to say unkind things about each other. He hated swearing or rough ways of speaking. Every day he brought a hundred poor people to eat at his table. For himself he took any food which was set before him, and always added water to his wine. He went to see sick people in their homes, and would wash the feet of beggars, and even nursed lepers. Yet St. Louis found plenty of time too to rule his country well. He was strong and healthy, taller by a head than any of his knights, finely shaped with bright eyes and long fair hair. He loved his children very much, and was a splendid husband and father. He kept France orderly and happy, and although he was strict with the feudal lords, he never cheated them, or used them roughly as his grandfather Philip Augustus had done. There was never a better king, or a nobler knight, than St. Louis of France. St. Louis went twice on crusade, the first time was in the year 1248. Four years before, the Christians had again lost Jerusalem, and this time they lost it for ever. It was the Sultan of Egypt who had captured it, and it was against him that St. Louis led his army. St. Louis was a brave soldier and a good leader, but the swampy lands of the mouth of the Nile were difficult to cross for soldiers who were not used to them. The heat was dreadful, and there was very little food. A plague broke out among the soldiers, and soon St. Louis was taken prisoner. His whole army laid down their arms, but nearly all were killed. 
Only St. Louis and the rich lords were kept alive and set free when a large ransom was paid. Then St. Louis went on to the Holy Land, but he would not go to Jerusalem, for, like Richard of the Lionheart, he could not bear to see the Holy City when he knew that he could not win it back for the Christians. St. Louis brought back to France a crown of thorns, which was said to be that with which our Lord was crowned, and the lance which pierced his side, and the sponge which moistened his lips. He built a beautiful little chapel in Paris in which these relics were kept. It is called the Sainte-Chapelle, and may still be seen today. After St. Louis came back from the crusade, he always wore quite plain woolen clothes in winter, and robes of dark-coloured silks in summer. The Christians still had Antioch and the other cities of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but they were always quarrelling among themselves. At last the Sultan of Egypt took Antioch too, and threatened Acre and the other cities. Once more St. Louis got ready to go on crusade, but he died on the way in the year 1270. His last words were, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. His followers sadly carried his body back to France. Charles of Anjou, the cruel king of Sicily, was with St. Louis when he died at Tunis. Charles was only anxious to win something for himself from the crusade, and made peace when the ruler of Tunis promised to pay the double of the tribute to the kings of Sicily, which he was already paying. Edward of England, the son of the English king Henry III, and grandson of King John, sailed up to join the crusade, just as the treaty had been signed. He was very angry and sailed off with his own thirteen ships to Acre. He stayed in the Holy Land a year, but once more Charles of Anjou arranged for peace with the Sultan of Egypt. The Sultan tried to have Edward secretly killed with a poisoned weapon, but he was wounded and not killed. His good wife Eleanor sucked the poison from the wound and so saved his life. The End of the Crusades Edward left the Holy Land to come back to be King of England when his father died. He was the last great Western prince who really went on crusade. A year or two later the Pope preached a great crusade but died before it started and the crusade was given up. In a few years more even the few places which remained of the Kingdom of Jerusalem were taken by the Mohammedans and only a few ruins remain today to tell the tale. The Crusades may seem to us to have failed altogether, but after all great things had been done in them, and though some of the men who joined them were selfish and ambitious, many others were very noble. It was a splendid thing that the kings and princes of Europe could agree to go together and fight for their religion in far-off lands. It was a pity that they could not always agree, and that the journeys were not arranged better. If only the Kingdom of Jerusalem had been kept in the hands of Christians, the Turks, who have since conquered Greece and other parts of Eastern Europe and ruled them very cruelly, might have been kept out of Europe altogether. Edward of England, the last of the great Crusaders, was called Edward I when he became King of England. There had been other kings named Edward, but not since the Norman Conquest, and it was from that time that the kings were now counted. But by the time Edward became King of England, the English and the Normans in England had become one people. Edward was an old English name, and Edward I was a real English king. 
In his reign, the English language began to be used in the courts of law. Before that, French had been spoken there. Edward was a fine, handsome man like St. Louis, taller by a head than ordinary men. He was not a saint, but he was a very good man. Even when he was a boy, he had been very wise and sensible. His father, Henry III, the son of John, who was crowned King of England while still a baby, had not been a very good ruler. He was a good man, but not a wise king. He loved poetry and artistic things, and in those days the French people knew much more about these things than the English did. Henry filled his court with Frenchmen. Some of them were wicked and greedy men, and very cruel to the people. At last, a great English nobleman, called Earl Simon de Montfort, made up his mind to fight the king, and make him send away the foreigners and rule England properly. Earl Simon took the king prisoner, and the young Edward too, but after a time Edward got away, and he himself got together an army and fought against Earl Simon. A great battle was fought at Evesham in the south of England, and Earl Simon was killed. Then Henry was able to rule England again, but Edward told him that Earl Simon was quite right in wanting him to send the foreigners away, and so Henry ruled England with Edward's advice until he died. And when Edward became king, he too remembered the lessons he had learnt from Earl Simon, and ruled England well and wisely. So, although Earl Simon died in a struggle against his king, England ought to be very grateful to him, for he fought and died for the sake of his country. One great thing Edward learned from Earl Simon. Ever since the Norman conquest, the kings of England, when they asked advice at all, had called a meeting of the great nobles. But Simon de Montfort got each county to choose men to send to Parliament, and told some of the chief towns to do so too, and so the ordinary people began to have a share in the government of the country. King Edward saw that this was a good thing, and so he did the same, and this is how our Parliament really began. Edward I was a very brave soldier. He was anxious to win Wales and Scotland, and join them to England. In his time, Wales, whose people were descendants of the Britons, who had been driven west by the English when they first came to this country, was ruled by princes of their own. Edward made the princes pay tribute to the English king, and afterwards when they rebelled, he conquered Wales, and it has belonged to England ever since. He tried to do the same with Scotland, but Scottish heroes like Robert Bruce and William Wallace fought hard for their country, and all his life Edward was fighting to win Scotland, but never did. He died on his way with an army to Scotland, and told his son, who became Edward II, to carry his body with him to battle, and never to bury it until Scotland had been won. But Edward II was a weak and foolish king. He took no notice of his promise, and soon Scotland was quite free from England, and remained so for three hundred years longer, when a Scottish king became king of England too, and so joined the two countries. But in spite of his failures, Edward I was perhaps the greatest of our old English kings, and one of the noblest knights of his time. End of chapter 24